0: Go ahead and have a seat if you would. Our kids are being dismissed to Children's Church as we go this morning as well. Uh, If you have your Bible, you can open it to Hosea. Hosea is a great book. Um, We will be there this morning. Welcome to fall, huh? Yeah? Cold, rainy... Break out the jackets. Love jacket weather. Uh so Hosea is an awesome book in many ways, and I like it because it's very uh non-typical Christian stuff. You're not gonna find real like we've been walking through this when obedience is hard stuff for like, I think six weeks now. And when I talked about uh Moses, I, I talked about we we have this this pretty picture of Moses walking down a mountain with uh, with with the Ten Commandments and but ultimately Moses is is a murderer and then the Noah story we talked about the Noah story and we think that you know we have these pretty pictures of of arcs and uh, sweet animals but what happened was God killed every human being on the planet in that story and so we. We kind of give the the sense of like a a sweet little Bible school story on these things, but Hosea, you you really can't do that too, because ultimately what Hosea is about is God comes to Hosea and says there are uh, there are a bunch of people that are ignoring me, m- giving idols that are going on in this world, and here's what I want you to do: I want you to go marry a prostitute, and I want you to uh, proclaim to the world that they are acting just like this prostitute. And then I'm going to allow this prostitute to get pregnant by the men who pay to have sex with her. And uh, I want you to raise those children as your own, and I want you to name them uh, really, really awful names. And we'll get to those names in just a second. But uh, imagine walking into a Christian bookstore and, and seeing that story. We're going to tell the story today of a man who married a prostitute and uh, he, was, he was the pastor of the world at this point. And, or imagine like today, like some, uh, some really famous, imagine uh, a, a single man. Imagine John Piper is single and he walks into uh, the, the middle of the red light district in downtown Minneapolis and, and he picks out a prostitute and he marries her. Imagine the grief that John Piper's going to get for that. And then imagine all these children being raised up in his home. It's just, it's, it's crazy. And I want to get our minds past the, I, I want to shock us with what's happening. What This is a, a very shocking thing. If, if a man of God were to marry a prostitute today, he would probably lose his church. He would probably like, what are you doing we, we, we couldn't ever think that it was from God that he was out there marrying a prostitute or, or even having a, a relationship with a prostitute. We'd probably accuse him of, of you probably got her pregnant in, in some back alley thing, and, and, you, we'd, and so it would just be ugly. But here, I want to shock us and understand that this is, this is what's happening. God's chosen man, Hosea, has married a prostitute to, to proclaim a very difficult message to the people, uh, so, I want to give us some, some context to what's happening in the historical context and in the religious context of what's happening in Israel in this day. Uh, the stuff is going to be on the screen, because it's important for us to, to come to the, the grips with this as we, as we get into the, the book of Hosea. But before we get there, let's, let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity for us to come together and gather together and uh, and hear your word. I pray, Lord, that you would be bold in our lives. God, I give you permission in my heart and I give you permission in the hearts of these to to attack us, to convict us of sin, to, as as we just sang. It's your beauty and your kindness and your love that leads us to repentance, Father. And I pray that the first step of repentance, that you would make us aware of our own idols in our own hearts. You would make us aware of our own unfaithfulness and even prostitution that's in our own lives. God, I pray that that sexual metaphor would, would descend upon our hearts and, and we would be made fully aware of our deep unfaithfulness to you and at the same time be made fully aware of your deep and beautiful love for us. God, I thank you for the book of Hosea. I thank you for what you did in his life and how you have persevered it for us that we can understand and have your character revealed to us. I thank you even more for Christ. It's in his perfect name. Amen. So the historical context of the book of of Hosea, here's what's happening in the world of of Israel at this point. Uh, First, Israel and Ephraim, which is another uh, one of the 12 tribes of, of Israel, enjoy peace and relative prosperity at the beginning of Hosea's writing. So when Hosea rises to prominence as a prophet of God's people, uh, there is uh, a lot of prosperity that's going on in the land of Israel and, and Ephraim. And then King Jeroboam II dies. He was the guy who was good, a good king, and did lots of really good things and uh, followed the will of the Lord, and he died. And then six kings rule in rapid succession until the kingdom was overthrown by Assyria in 722 BC. So there's great prosperity, and then six different kings rule over a very short period of time. And the reason that there are six kings that that rule is there are assassinations, there are power plays, and just dysfunction of all kinds. So when Jeroboam dies and another king comes up, and there's already kings or other kings to be uh, planning their their plots and, and planning their to, to plot seeds of dysfunction in murders and assassinations and, and overthrowing that government. So this happens over and over and over again. There's no political stability at all. And the only thing that is present is dysfunction that's there. Uh, Hosea 8 4 says, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction ultimately, they, they don't worry so much about what's happening, what God wants for them. They want what they want for themselves. And so they set up their own kings. They set up their own power plays. It's all very uh, self-important. It's all very self-centered. It's all very self-focused. Next point, Israel perceives themselves to be dependent upon Assyria, a neighboring country, during this time and get kings in and out of trouble based on paying tribute to Assyria. Let me explain what that means. Ultimately, Israel and the kings with that, those six kings that came after Jeroboam II, they get themselves in and out of trouble based on how much money and how much respect they paid to Assyria. So they see, they're seeing Assyria is as their God. They're seeing Assyria as the one that provides for them. We can see the, the obvious flaw in that. Verse 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 10 of Hosea The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord. Their God, nor seek Him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. I don't want to pass up what Hosea just said. He, the people that he's he's speaking to, he just called them silly and without sense. That's a. Imagine you are a, a person living in Ephraim, and, and you see, wait a second, my pastor. The prophet of God just called me silly and without sense. It's, it's going to get worse here in a second. The next historical context. God uses Assyria in this time as his rod of punishment that they eventually will overthrow Israel. In the midst, I'm going to talk not much about disobedience today, but a lot about obedience. But I want to understand, I want to make this very clear. God does punish disobedience. God does punish disobedience. And, and this sort of reformed theological church and, and how we talk about we can do nothing to gain or, or, or lose our salvation, and, and God has, has done all this, and we have done nothing as, as a part of our salvation, the Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 stuff uh, is, is truth. But we can error very quickly and very easily to understand that for some reason, God doesn't punish our disobedience. Let me be very clear. God does punish disobedience disobedience. And it happens in the book of Hosea, verses 10 and 6. 10 verse 6. The thing shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great king. Ephraim will be put to shame, and Israel will be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. Ultimately what's happening is there is the destruction of Israel, and they are overthrown and taken over. The kingdom is no longer because Assyria comes and takes it over. Now, let's transition just a second. Uh, We're moving through this really quick because I want to get to the the ultimate part of what I want to talk about. Uh, The religious context of what's happening here. Um, Baal is a god that the Assyrians worship, and as a result, because of, of the the need and the perceived need, the perceived that Assyria is, is helping us, keeping us alive, keeping up, we're, we're paying tribute to Assyria and they're not going to attack us, they're going to keep us safe. Because of that, their gods are seeping into the religion of the Israelites. So there's, there's God, Jehovah, and there's the, the small g God, Baal. And Baal actually means the master husband. So they are worshiping the person that they are calling the master husband. And Baal is a god whose actions are very sexual in nature. There's there's a lot of sexuality that's in the the following and worship of Baal, physical and metaphorical and spiritual. And it's which is probably why God chose Hosea to go and and prophet to these people to speak to these people with in a very sexual context. Because if you're going to follow Baal, here's I'm going to show you. Immorality for, for sexuality. So, Baal is a God whose actions are very sexual in nature. He was very fertile and provided his fertility to the Mother Earth in the form of rain. They believed that when, when it rained, that was Baal, the, God, the master husband, having sex with Mother Earth, and the, the fruit that was provided was the food that they would eat. All right? Very specific stuff they're talking about. The, the third thing. Baal's temple ritual acts included physical sexual acts with prostitutes And spiritual adultery bowing down to lesser gods under Baal. So here, I don't don't want us to be unclear about what's happening. The Israelites, because of their connection with Assyria, have begun to worship their god Baal. And their god Baal, part of of the worship process, for us to come and gather and worship Jehovah, worship Christ as we come and we sing songs and we partake of communion and, and we give back, these are all forms of worship for us. For them... Israel, in this context, by worshiping Baal, their forms of worship were to go to the temple, find a prostitute, pay her, have sex with her in that temple, and, and that was worship for them. And these are the Israelites. This is what they are doing. This is the, how they are chasing after the gods of this earth. And, and I hope that that kind of, oh my gosh, I can't believe that would happen. That was, that was happening in the temples of Jehovah God. Crazy stuff. And these people are syncretistic, which means they worship both Baal and Yahweh at the same time. I want to spend just a, a couple of minutes talking about syncretism, and then I want to make, us, make for us three points about uh, obedience. First, syncretism is—this is, this is a, a dictionary definition— syncretism, the attempted reconciliation or union of different or opposing principles, practices, or parties, as in philosophy or religion— so it's we're going to we're going to take the worship of jehovah and marry it with the worship of baal and that's called syncretism and it's important for us to, to it's it's obvious for us to see that in this context in hosea but i want to spend the rest of our time this morning thinking about how it's obvious for us to look into our lives and see how we can be very easily syncretistic While we don't come to church and hire prostitutes and have sex with them in churches, we do very similar things, metaphorically speaking. But here, it's religious adultery. A a commentator that that I got to read this week is a guy named Gary Smith. I'll quote him again. He says this, The syncretism of Israel's ancient faith was so complete that the people deceived themselves into thinking that everything was fine. Let that sit in your brain for a second. The syncretism of Israel's ancient faith was so complete that they deceived themselves into thinking that everything was fine. It's fine to go into the temple of the Lord and have sex with a prostitute. The syncretism was so complete, they didn't even notice it. They didn't even notice their sin. They didn't even notice their folly. They didn't even notice their their immorality. And for us, if we're sitting in, in this room today, and as I, I sat and studied this week, apply this to us. If, if we don't see syncretism seeking it, seeping into our lives, maybe it's because we're so deep in the heart of it. We're going to spend a lot of time this morning thinking through this. Um, the, the leadership here is, of of Israel is self-serving. There's sexual perversion. There's idols everywhere, idols of sex, Idols of safety, idols of, of provision. God is going to provide for us, and here's how he's going to do it. We're going to seek Assyria to be our provider. We, we need to be provided sexually, so we're going to hire prostitutes to do it. So Hosea then attacks here. So I, I want us to spend less time this morning thinking about them in the book of Hosea and more time thinking about us in 2010. I want us to ask this question of ourselves. What areas of my life have I become this harlot? Hosea is going to call the, the people of Israel harlots, and he's going to call them uh, their people living in whoredom. He's going to use really difficult, intense language. Where, what areas in my life have I become unknowingly syncretistic? And as we do, I pray that God will bring us awareness of our own sin and awareness of of our acceptance despite our sin, and we can have be led to repentance by the kindness and love and beauty of our God. So, turn to Hosea chapter one. And we're going to read from Hosea chapter one, the first nine verses. <clears throat> when the Lord God spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, "Go and take for your wa- for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom." Don't miss that. That what that phrase "having children of whoredom" means. The, the people that pay to have sex with your wife you 're going to raise their children for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord when, I, I just want to want to pause for just a second and and think about what God just said to you through the mouth of Hosea when we chase after provision of our own when we chase after protection of our own, we chase after joy and, and peace and, and things that we chase after outside of the provision of God, God perceives that to be whoredom. God just called you a whore. This is not Christian bookstore stuff. The land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Verse 5. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter from a, a john. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. No Mercy for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel and forgive them at all. God just said, Hosea, you're going to have a child because some guy had sex with your wife and he's gonna have a, she's going to have a daughter and I want you to name her No Mercy. I, I hope the, the intensity of, of what's happening here is not being lost. Verse 7, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by the bow, or by the sword, or by war, or by horses or horsemen. Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, her daughter, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, you shall call his name not my people. There are some weird names in the Bible, but imagine you having children called no mercy and not my people. As constant reminders of your whoredom. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. It's a really, really awful thing that's happening that that Hosea has to speak to the people. In the midst of of people distrusting him because he's married to a prostitute, he's now calling his children, no mercy, and and you are not my people. And now these people are hearing this. But let's skip to verse 2, which is the beautiful, loving language. Chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. He's talking about the church. He's talking about Israel. Think about the the beauty of that. God is now saying, I've I've disowned you. I've put you away. But now I'm going to allure you. It's a very sexual context. But here's God showing himself to be beautiful to you, to draw yourself to him. To make himself look attractive, so that we will be drawn to him, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I, I picture. There, there are a lot of times I I, I, I talk about my marriage a lot, probably too much. Um, but I, I just I'm so deeply in love with my wife, and when I when I, when I read this and and I think about lying down in in bed with her and, and as we're falling asleep, just. Just speaking words of of tender love and, and she speaks them to me or or I get a text from her during the course of the day or or i 'm just overcome I'm, I think about our kids and and i'm i 'm so grateful to God for my bride as she she raises our children and we raise them together and, and i 'm overcome and I, I speak tender words of love to her and and I think about the motivation in my heart that 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 drives me to speak those words to her, and I think about Just the depth of love that God has granted to us. And then I read these words. After the such difficult language of not my people and no mercy, and you are a child of whoredom, the same God is speaking tenderly to us. It's beautiful. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of anchor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the heavens, and creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. Watch what's happening here. The people of God are totally stagnant. They are doing nothing. The action is all on God. As we wrestle with this obedience thing, just stop and let God be who he is. God is the one speaking tenderly. God is the one alluring us. God is the one making us lie down in safety. He is the one abolishing the bow, abolishing war. Verse nineteen, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know that I am the Lord. What a beautiful picture of love and acceptance and the beauty of God. So I want to spend the last moments we have today making three quick points about obedience and and when it is hard. I'm going to say these in in a very gentle, sweet, and nice way. But what I really want to say is this. Obedience is hard because we are stupid. I want to say that to every one of you. Obedience is hard. It's hard for you to be obedient because you're dumb. And I don't want to to be the guy up here calling you dumb. I'm calling myself dumb at the same time. Obedience ultimately is hard because we're stupid and we're dumb and we can't look at the past and see how God was awesome and see how God was providential and how he provided for us and, and the gifts that he's given to us. We are so stupid that we can't see what was behind us So we can't see the, where we are right now. And tomorrow, we're gonna go make choices to worship idols. We're gonna go make choices to worship our Baal. And God is gonna say, wait a second, I love you. I wanna give you all that, all that, I, all that I can. So that's the hard way to say it. Here's the, the nice way to say it. Obedience is hard because we don't understand the depth of the love of God. Obedience is hard because we don't understand God's love. The introduction to the ESV Bible for the book of Hosea says this. The book shows the depth of God's love for his people that tolerates no rivals. When we see that, God's love is so deep, that it tolerates no rivals. It doesn't make much sense to us. But I I want you to to hear this one statement. The most loving thing that God can do for you is to command unwavering fidelity. The most loving thing God can do for you is to command unwavering fidelity. Don't pay attention to any other gods but me. That's the most loving thing God can say to you. I had lunch this week uh, in the... My, my other job, the insurance job, I had lunch this week with a, a couple uh, of people from an insurance company called Cincinnati. One was from here, a girl named Terry, and her boss was from the, the city of Cincinnati, Alex. And he came to, to just meet some local agents, and I'd done some business with them lately, and so I got to, to go out to lunch with the two of them. So Alex is from Cincinnati, and the night before this lunch, they had gone out, and, and Terry had taken him to a restaurant on the hill to eat toasted ravioli. And he had never had it before. He's like, wow, this is fantastic. Why isn't this all over the country? Why is this just in St. Louis? And he loved it. And so he wanted to to go to a restaurant the next day where he could get more toasted ravioli. And then after they had toasted ravioli the night before, they went to Ted Drew's and had frozen custard. I don't know if you know this, but frozen custard is also a St. Louis thing. It's not Other places you have ice cream or frozen yogurt. Here we have frozen custard. And Ted Drew's, uh, a lot of people think it's the best. I personally don't, but it's... Everybody's frozen custard is something that, that is not outside of our city. And so Terry took him there because he can't get this anyplace else. And that's the point that's happening here. This is the, the point, that, that the thought that's behind this quote. When you come to St. Louis, you need to have what you can't have anyplace else. There is no rival that you, you can go have a sandwich anywhere, but you can only have toasted ravioli here. And that's kind of kind of silly, and toasted ravioli is toasted ravioli, but the thought is the most loving thing that Terry could do for Alex was to take him someplace where he couldn't have any place else. The most loving thing that God can do is command our unwavering fidelity. God commanding obedience is not a power trip, but the ultimate act of love. So many times we want to rebel when somebody's, okay, I want here— we say, this, this quote happens a lot. Um, I only am not, I'm not going to do that just because somebody told me to. That's the reason I'm going to disobey. I just can't handle somebody telling me what to do. And that happens a lot when we read scripture and we see commands that God has had and we say, I want to do the opposite just because somebody told me this is what to do. But if we understand this quote and understand this context, we understand the love of God, the most beautiful, loving thing he can do is say, obey me, because it's the path to to perfect beauty, to perfect life, to perfect peace. I want to say that that we chase after our own satisfaction. We look for things outside of God to gaze upon, to give us joy, to, to behold beauty, but God has provided all that we need to to be happy. All we need to have perfect, intense peace and intense joy. But we look for rivals to God and in so doing, we become the prostitute of the story. And I want to say this as firmly and as pastorally as I can. Stop it. God is pursuing you to stop it. To stop chasing idols. Stop being the whore. Stop being the harlot. Because In him lies perfect peace. In him lies perfect redemption. Find in him ultimate beauty. You won't find ultimate beauty in anything other than God. The second thing, obedience is hard because we don't understand the completeness of our acceptance. Uh, Some of you guys might be familiar with this story, but I want to... Read it to you again. There's a lot of you who are not familiar with it. It paints the picture of what I'm talking about. I'm going to read this here. A man sits alone in a loft apartment in a familiar city. Try and allow your mind to, to see these images as this, this is written. His jacket is in a pile next to him, and his shirt collar is wrinkled and worn. His head is in his hands, and he lets out a deep sigh That signifies his resolve to do the hardest thing that he will ever do. The last few hours have been spent in that corner of the apartment wrestling with his thoughts. He arrived in that corner after a long day at work and opening the door to his loft to find evidence of a cheating wife. He has been aware of the affair for some time now, but her unfaithfulness is now certain. The affair is not the only thing that he's been wrestling with. Just a few days ago, while out with other couples, his wife had spoken words to him that broke him. The words of the young wife had since faded and are now vague, but the wounds that they left remain. That was a final night that she could even look him in the eye. The man rises now from his corner of torment and looks around the room, and his eyes land on a spot where they had once told each other how much they loved each other and how there would never be a time when their love could not overcome anything this world could throw at them. That day and that spot are now only faded memories. As he leaves the loft with his jacket still slumped in the corner, the man steps onto the pavement, and the cold wind takes his breath away. But it does not weaken his resolve to do what must be done. He drives to the home where he knows his wife and and her lover are. He opens the car door and strides towards the door with his head down. About halfway up the sidewalk, he hears the door begin to open. His wife straightens her collar as she steps out of the door. As she lifts her eyes, they meet his. Fear and shame paint her face, and tears instantly overcome them both. But his resolve is strong, and the emotion of the moment is not strong enough to break the resolve. He removes his hands from his pockets, And his hand reaches her, and in a perfect motion, he brings her close and embraces her and whispers, I love you. I forgive you. This is the the beauty of our God. I need you to, 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 to see this. As we wrestle with obedience, as we wrestle with our current disobedience, as we wrestle with our past disobedience, our future obedience is hard because we don't understand the beauty of the story. We don't understand the beauty of our complete and full acceptance. If we are to be obedient, if we, are, if we are to enjoy the fullness of relationship with a perfect and holy God, we have to understand the depth of our acceptance and the depth of the love of God. John Piper says this, "The Love, love God warmly as your husband. Don't just serve him dutifully as your Lord. Love him as the husband who labors and suffers to protect and provide for you even as you fail. In our story in Hosea, nothing had changed in the life of the people of Israel from verse from chapter one to chapter two, when they were still whores and prostitutes and still having children named no mercy, and I am not your God. God spoke tenderly. God was the husband in the story, reaching for his bride and saying, I love you, I forgive you. The same commentator I I quoted, Gary Smith, says this transformation will only come to God's people when they are convinced of his deep desire to forgive the prostitutes of the world. Obedience happens in us when we fully recognize and fully understand that we are convinced of God's deep desire to forgive us. And accept us and love us. How beautiful and worthy of worship and devotion and obedience is a God that loves us and accepts us in the midst of our whoredom, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our chasing after idols. Romans 5 8 While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the motivation for for obedience. This is the thing that drives us to obey, that drives us to lay down the things that we chase of this world, that gives us our our purpose and our our peace and our direction and our motivation for obedience. The last thing, and this one's quick. Obedience is hard because we do not understand the beauty that comes from obedience. Obedience is hard because we do not understand the beauty that comes from obedience. Obedience. As I was overwhelmed by this thought this week, I wrote this. And all these things are are gifts to my life that that have come from a loving and beautiful God and motivate obedience. When I come home from work and I hold and tickle Mia and she giggles, it's, it's sweet. It's sweeter when I see her as a beautiful gift from God. When I watch Cooper and Hannah play soccer, it's sweeter when I see them as gifts from a beautiful God. When I hear of Brianna serving homeless people, it's sweeter when I see her as a beautiful gift of God. When I go to work for my dad and I receive provision so that my family can eat, it's sweeter when I see that as a beautiful gift from God. When I sit around the table or the fire in my house with great friends, I'm reminded that they are a gift from God. When we eat in one another's homes and laugh together and do life together and hurt with each other and cry together, it's more beautiful when we see them as beautiful gifts from God. When I walk through hard times with one of you, when we carry one another's burdens, I'm reminded that we are all gifts from God. When I kiss my bride and hold her hand as we fall asleep, I breathe in deep the beauty of God. When we all stand together in just a a few seconds and worship and sing songs proclaiming worship to our God, when we partake of communion, when we give back to God, when we pray with each other, we are utilizing the gifts of God. And when we trace them back to him, we understand the beauty that comes from God. And that motivates our obedience and we rest and breathe in deep the greatness and the glory of this beautiful and perfect God who wants to bless you with himself who wants to bless you with these things like your children and your friends and your church and opportunities to worship him he wants to give those things to you now we get a chance every day to respond to him in worship let's pray god i i stand before you fully aware of my unworthiness to speak your truth in this in this room god i am the harlot i chase after my own pleasure god Be with me now. Be with this congregation now. Be with these people now, Father. Allow us to see in you beautiful love. Allow us to see in you perfect beauty and perfect acceptance. God, cause us to see our wretched, whoring lives. God, remind us that you look upon disobedience as filthy. God, may we not get past the image of people coming to the temple and paying a prostitute and having sex with her in the midst of the temple. May we not get past the metaphor of that in our hearts. God, break us of our sin. Break me of my sin, God. And help us to understand it's not a power trip that you have, God. But it's the most loving and beautiful thing that you can do for us. Because in obedience lies perfect beauty, perfect communing relationship, perfect life and peace. God, this is the path to you. Give us the courage now to live lives that are reflective, that that truth is buried deep in our souls. God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for these people. I thank you for my children. I thank you for provision in my life. I thank you for my bride. I thank you for sitting around the fire tonight at Travis's place. That we might soak in deep the provision that you have for us, God. And those things might lead us to to obedience. God, we want to love you. We want to chase hard after you, God. God, help us to lay aside the sin that easily entangles us and run the race with perseverance for the joy that's set before us. Be among us, Father, in this time of response. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for an all-persevering love in the midst of our stupidity. God, we love you. Help us to give our lives to you. In Christ's name, amen.